Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. This is the uh, second in a long series of conversations that I I hope to have with folks that uh, are, are friends of mine, folks that I know in this uh, space of awakenedness who have done kind of the inner work and and they've uh, had life experiences. And, and today's guest I'm really excited about. It's a really good friend of mine. His name is Miles. And I'll bring him on here and we'll... Uh, We'll begin the conversation, but this should be a lot of fun, folks, today, and I hope that you really uh, enjoy this. And so without uh, without further ado, uh, let me grab uh, the screen here and pull him up. Miles, how are you? Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Thank you. Excellent. So let me start by telling people about the first time I met you. Yeah. And you can fill in some of the blanks. And then we can talk a little bit. I think if, if you're comfortable, I'd like to talk a little bit about the journey behind you first, um, just a little bit of a setup so that folks can get a feel for who you are, what at least some of the kind of big events in your life have been and some of the, what, what's led to maybe you really jumping into sort of inner work and, and doing the things that bring to this moment a very grounded, in my perspective anyway, a very grounded, wise, uh, developed human being who... Mm-hmm as I've been in numerous conversations with you, somebody who um, seems to hold space for other people's individuality seems to recognize the harm that we sometimes do as human beings, especially if we collectively band together uh, over beliefs or uh, uh, shared uh, constructs that can sometimes be used to hurt or traumatize others. But the first time I, I met you, I, uh, knew your husband, uh, Jim, and we, me and uh, my wife and some friends, we uh, came uh, out to, uh, I think we all met maybe in uh, Vegas. Was that right? right? Right. And we went to a restaurant and then to a show in Vegas. I, I Now I know it's Vegas because I remember what the show was. <laughs> and we all got together for dinner. And you knew m- me sort of from the podcast world. And I knew your husband, Jim, and I, I walked up and uh, shook your hand. And we were going to have sort of kind of a workshop kind of uh, setting that weekend. And you said, Bill, what are you, what are you here to work on? What are you here to, to tackle? And I said, if I can be honest with you, I'm here to tackle my homophobia. That, um, that the constructs my family gave me that I had been working my ass off to try to shed. But as you know, we'll speak to some of those are really not simple. They're kind of ingrained in us by uh, the things that happened to us younger, right? The things that were said and shared and the perspectives that were valued, the sort of values that our family gave us. And I said, I'm here to work on my homophobia, knowing that you uh, were a gay man. Do you remember what your response was? Yeah, I, I think I said I'd love to. Let's yeah. let's do this. And uh, and and I don't. I hope you're comfortable with this. But one of the other things you said was you said, Bill, I'm also dealing with homophobia. Yeah. And I thought that was. I wasn't expecting that. I. You're a gay man. I thought there's no way you'd be carrying any homophobia. You're, as a gay man, like that doesn't make any sense. But maybe talk about that for a second. Absolutely. And maybe tie in whatever events in your life you'd want to, to kind of support 
why that view was something you were holding at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So if you think of homophobia, it, it comes from our, our upbringing. It's the microaggressions that happen in our culture, in our homes, in our religion. And so being raised in the 70s uh, and 80s, it's not a not a time in our in our history that is really welcoming that at all. Right. And so you you work so hard at hiding any part of you, which when you hide part of you, you're creating a phobia in in yourself. Mm. And me being a gay man and very closeted and not really wanting to break that at all because uh, family expectations and structure and religion that I thought I got pretty good at being <laughs> pretending to be straight. Um, yeah, but it <laughs> didn't work as well. But um, so you really have this internalized homophobia. And then when you meet another man who comes across as maybe gay or effeminate or whatever, you almost push them away. Like I can't mm. be even near you because I might be found out. Mm. And so I pushed a lot of potential friendships away growing up because I thought, Oof, I don't want to be found out. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that it's so difficult to shed the unhealthy attitudes our parents or our religion, or in my case, and maybe you can agree with this too, but aunts and uncles, conversations that happened in uh, holiday gatherings where people are sharing their views on politics or religion. Uh, it, it sure as hell happened in our religious system when you go to church on Sunday and we're told what is good and what is bad and how we humans need to show up to be okay with God. And um, I, I thought it was just, I don't, I don't it, when you gave me that, that moment you said, Hey Bill, I'm dealing with that too. You made it safe for me to show up mm. bringing these, um, bringing these unhealthy attitudes. Like, like I'm in the middle of doing IFS work, internal family systems, a form of therapy where you, talk to the various parts of yourself as if they are separate and treat them that way. And, and, and I, I know very easily there, there is a part of me at that time that was uh, very homophobic. And there was also another part of me that said, that's not okay. And that's not right. And it's not healthy. And you made it so safe for me to be like, Oh, like I can just be me. And, and you'll hold that. And that weekend was to me magical. Um, I think it's certainly kind of this moment in time where I took you in and said, this is going to be a really good friend of mine because you made it so safe for me to be vulnerable. Um, and you yourself were vulnerable. And I'm, I'm just curious, maybe do, are you comfortable telling folks sort of your, a little bit of your religious journey? Um, I'd like to hear about, I'd, I'd like the audience to hear about, what it is that you kind of had to overcome within religion to be yourself, to be yeah. you, which is a beautiful, magnificent human being. Uh, thank you. Yes, I was raised um, LDS. I was born in, into it. My parents both coming from, you know, generations of Mormonism. And I was raised in a small town where there's, you know, everyone knows everybody's business. And we obviously told that 
homosexuality is next to murder. Th those are some of the words that were taught or the phrases that were taught back in the day. And so when you hear these really toxic messages about who you are, there's no way you want to be even close or part of that. So I, I went on ahead and, you know, lived like I should. I married a woman. I had kids. I was working for the church. And so it all kind of created this, what I thought was a safe container to just be. And what I ended up doing was doing everything externally, you know, being the best husband, being the best father. And gay men can do a good job of that <laughs> because mm, right. if we can ignore what's happening inside of us, we can exert that outside of us and be really good at the things. Um, and so I think with, with that, it was just, I was going to take to the grave. I just thought there's no place for me to be who I am. Um, especially in a culture where, and a religion, of course, where it's not acceptable. I mean, like you were saying, you know, you're in circles where people use gay slang or homosexual slang, and it's jarring when I hear someone say, and I'll use the, we call it the F word, faggot, it just, it would just send a shock down my body, almost like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. there it is. And am I being focused? Is there attention drawn to me? And so those were, those were words used uh, in my home, at school. And so you just try to become invisible because there's, it's not safe to really be you. Um, you know, I had people who suspected and they would say things and they would treat me differently. And um, that was enough rejection to just realize you just have to be invisible at every turn and, uh, and hide it. And especially at church. You know, and then and then serving a mission where you're with a companion, a male companion, twenty four seven, you just shut it down. Like there's just not a place to be. I mean, you're with a man. You might be attracted to him or not for twenty four seven, and so you just you just numb out. At least that's that's how I kind of treated it. So, um, when I finally, it was it actually took my wife asking for a divorce for different reasons, because I hadn't even come out yet. Um, I was a single dad and I was realizing this feeling cannot be ignored any longer. It is tearing me apart. Um, I was, it was, it was like that fissure that was happening. It was just pulling both sides of me apart. And I remember going to therapy and this was months into it. And the therapist said, can you even say I'm gay? I'm like, I can't. And of course, I'm comfortable with that, very comfortable with it now. But just if that tells you how much homophobia and how much fear was involved in me just accepting me by saying I'm gay. So that's a that's a very deep experience to have to pull and dig yourself out of to finally realize that I'm I'm OK. And at the time I was barely OK and now I'm amazing and I feel wonderful. Yeah. I think we're all hiding, right? Like, I think it is so much more tangible, so much more heavy when it's such a crucial part of your identity, such as your uh, inclination, inclinations of attraction, right? You're the, who, who you're genetically designed to be attracted to. 
And we can think of other issues that are sort of that heavy, but every human being is pretending to, to fit in with the, with society and to be okay in the in group and to, we're all wearing masks. And it, it strikes me that um, when you have, when you go through life, not being able to be you and you finally sort of break out of that, um, there's so much more compassion. Like, like one of the gifts that I see you developed and I think to some degree I have is compassion for people trying to be themselves, trying to show up in the world, just being all of them and, and um, trying to express themselves and belong still without having to change themselves to fit in. Because my wife used to always say, like, I would, I'd say, I love you. And she would say, you don't really love me. You like an, you love an idea of me. And I, I couldn't quite go like, no, no, no. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, I love you. And the reality is that when people don't feel safe to present all of themselves, we are liking, we're attracted to, we're, we're enjoying the company of a person who's pretending to be something other than who they are. And maybe speak for a moment about some of the harm that that like caught, like that, that's a hard thing to live that way. I know that in my life, it was super hard and I didn't even have this sort of thing where my being is in such uh, discrepancy with what the people around me are telling me I have to be. And I, I know how hard my life was. Maybe speak for a moment about how difficult it is to carry that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. As I mentioned a little bit before in high school and in, in you know, younger years, it was hard to have male friends. I had a lot of girl friends which I guess was in its own like, oh, Miles likes girls. Well, I just like them as friends. I was often afraid of boys. Um, and so as I grew up and was in college and of course roommates and there were a few friends, but after getting married, I found that we were, we would become friends with other couples and we would do a lot of things together, but I actually pushed those male friendships away. I mean, they would try to plan things. I'm like, Oh, I can't make it because I thought, what if, what if I'm drawn to them? What if I'm attracted to them? What if I start to like love them as a person? And so I really just shut that off. So I could show up as a, as a friend in the group, but I couldn't, I couldn't show up really being me. And there were a few instances where people would say things, homophobic you know, slurs and comments where it was like, oh, okay, it's definitely not safe to show up that way. And of course, you know, you're propping up a life. I was propping up this life with a wife and kids and in the church. So you don't dare poke a hole in that because it's just going to leak out and it's going to get mm -hmm. messy. Um, so I think I missed out. Well, I don't think I know I missed out on a lot of uh, friendships that could have been incredibly an incredible gift and in a way healing. I think for men, period, gay, straight, bi, whatever we are, there's a lot of beautiful um, healing in just being vulnerable and being close to one another and just a big hug, you know, look in the eyes and have a conversation. So that's the part that I, I missed. Um, but I also see the same thing playing out with even straight men. There's a, mm. there's a fear with them getting close to another man or, and I think societally, we, 
you know, we have the LGBT spectrum, right? And we often try to take a person, say, okay, well, what is your sexuality? We're going to put you in that little box, that little slot. And which is lovely. There's a lot of different labels, heteroflexible and homoflexible. And there's all these different labels that are put out there. And I think what I've come to understand is I have a compassion for anybody who feels different than the norm, being heterosexual, straight, um, especially white, white, cis, you know, men. And it's also helped me to understand the trans uh, trauma or thinking or feeling uh, better. We have some dear friends who have a trans child, and I feel like I have learned so much just simply by being being able to understand my experience, and I'm not going to compare that to an, a trans experience at all, but just knowing how it felt to be closeted, and then <clears throat> their child actually feeling safe to actually go out in public, <clears throat> to build up enough courage to go out into public. And then when they were out in public, they were bullied and called names. And it just, it's heartbreaking because I recall those times when I, I felt that too. And again, it's a different degree, but that's what's helped me, I think, is to just remember that compassion for myself and for other people and that it's real. Yeah. Um. One of the, you know, again, the way this is set up is that I, I gave you a ton of questions and I said, you know, pick the ones that seem to be kind of dear to you and, and things that you wanted to kind of talk about. And the first one I want to jump into here is this idea of uh, what practices or tools have you found most effective in helping individuals transition from a religious framework to a more expansive spiritual perspective? And we spent a lot of time, Britt Hartley and I, on this podcast, having conversations about the differences between religion and spirituality. And uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are as you've deconstructed the constructs that were handed to you and you've tried to then shift over to a, uh, a life that let go of uh, those unhealthy things that religion gave you and, and, but also still to maintain some degree of spirituality. What, what are some of your thoughts about that transition and what kind of things have been helpful to you? Yeah. Yeah. To jump from a religion, which I, I kind of did. I, I, when my husband and I were dating, we dated for a year and a half long distance. I was in Utah. He was here. And so when I left to come down, I literally closed the book or the door on my life as a um, Mormon straight ish man moved here, which in that way you lose community. Anybody, anytime anybody leaves a religion, they lose community. And, and I often refer to more to religion or a Mormonism is it's lovely. There's lovely people. It feels like it's a shallow end of the pool. There's not as much depth in those relationships. And so we are, we want community and we've lost it. And I think, mm. especially for men, we have a hard time, uh, formulating that if it's mm. not set up or structured. So some of the practices that that I've found are helpful is looking at spirituality as, and I this is a reverse from Mormonism because they always refer to don't be a buffet Mormon. I look at spirituality as like the most incredible buffet in the world, Buddhism and you know whatever it might be. There's there's all kinds of options. And to go look and taste that food and just try it and see, gosh, how does it feel? How does it taste? 
and start to bring in practices that actually feel like internal. It's nothing an external feeling or you're told to feel a certain way, but you're really intuitive to your own body, how that feels, uh, be it breath work, uh, meditation, if it's crystals, if it's psychedelics, whatever those modalities that help bring you to that place, mm. that is what your own spirituality looks like. And just kind of a funny, quick story. Um, it wasn't funny at the time, but my husband and I, you know, obviously had left Mormonism and we were going through these different modalities and we created an altar in our bedroom that was mm. just you know, a place for significant things that meant something like pictures or objects or whatever it was that reminded us of, you know, the deeper parts of our souls. And um, we had these, these two shelves and about two 30 in the morning, one morning, we just hear this crash. And I got up, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And our two shelves had fallen to the floor. Now in Mormonism, the, the phrase, you know, yeah. broke your shelf. Yeah. And I realized I thought, we're just recreating more shelves. And my lesson was if I'm so attached to something that broke, maybe it's a good time for me to reflect on, do you really need to attach to that? Is this something I can hold loosely and at any point, just let it go. And that really changed the way I viewed spirituality is mm. gosh, if it feels like it's filling me in this moment, I love it. Is it going to do it in 10 years from now? Maybe not. And I can let that go. Yeah. What are what are some of the spiritual practices that you uh, currently have in your life? Uh, and, and maybe if, if to go with that story, maybe if there's something that you did that worked for a while that you've discarded, I I think it'd be interesting to talk about that as well. Yeah. So we kind of went, we went through this period where the moon phases, full moon, new moon. Mm. And there's a ceremony around that. And you can do, you know, you can write down intentions. Basically one of them is to write intentions and the other one is to let it go, which I think it, that practice alone is universal. It doesn't have to be, a, it can be a beautiful spiritual thing, but it doesn't have to be. And I, when I went into that mode, I thought, oh, this is kind of witchy. This is kind of <laughs> out there with, you know, uh, is this worshiping the moon? No, it's actually a reminder to be able to change things and have goals. And what do I want for my spirit and my soul? And so we would do those. We would have, we would write them down and we would burn them on the full moon or new moon. Fast forward to now. We don't necessarily burn that. We just think about what is it that I need to look at differently for the next 28 days uh, of the mm -hmm. moon cycle and how do I need to grow? And there's a lot of information to read out there that kind of helps maybe give ideas. If you write, if you read the, the descriptions of new moon and full moon. So it has evolved a bit. It's not quite as ritual. It's just more um, an internal ceremonial process. So that's one practice. Another one would be being mindful and in the moment. That is, we use that term a lot and it's a lesson I have to continue to learn every day, a reminder of like being present. Um, even if it's just tasting something that's, gosh, what is this flavor? Can I just pause for a minute and taste it? 
And so we've actually created uh, an interesting uh, ceremony of a sensory experience where we blindfold each other, friends, and the other half get to feed them. And the, old, the whole point is, is that their sight is gone, but they can taste things. And what it does is it helps them embody them, you know, go into their body and actually the senses are stronger. We live in such a world that's so chaotic and busy and we don't stop long enough to even taste things. And it's a really, it's a spiritual thing. It might sound kind of hokey, but to be able to close off the vision of, of life and to just smell and taste, it's a really beautiful thing. And you don't eat as much food. <laughs> yeah. You, you say, you know, you say that sounds hokey, but uh, I'll just say to the audience, not at all. I, the thing that comes to my mind is that I had a couple of friends come over and the one friend was like, hey, do you want to do a cacao ceremony? So uh, a really strong form of cocoa, essentially. And he would make he made a drink out of uh, the strong form of cocoa or cacao. And we all sat around and sipped on this. And, you know, you think, oh, it's a chocolate drink. It's going to be amazing, you know, and it wasn't. It was bitter. It wasn't really chocolatey at all. I mean, I, I can, my wife's like, my wife hates dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate, <laughs> but I also now understand why a little darker chocolate I would not like, right? Like the, and like as dirt. I was sipping, when I was sipping on it, it was so not sweet, not enjoyable, bitter in taste, but the ceremony is the idea is the same as what you're saying, which is to partake of this and to really sit with what it is that the flavor is. And it calls you to be really present because you almost have to endure the taste. You almost have to like really go like, this doesn't taste great, but I'm going to do this anyway. And so you're talking about positive taste experiences. I'm talking about negative, but. I don't know if you froze or not, Bill. It really is looking over. I, I've got over just on the other side of me. I've got uh, these little symbols that like for meditations, you bang into each other and it makes this noise, you know, ding, it just lasts forever. And I, once in a while in my house, I'll hit them together just so that the rest of my household is like drawn to be present again. Cause you can't help but be present when that noise happens. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's taste, whether it's sounds, there are certain ways in which we can call the the, the uh, human mind back to the present moment. And as you point out, it's so important. And the, you, you might think you are sort of good at it, but the moment you're not paying attention, you're not paying attention again. And you have to kind of draw yourself back into it. And uh, any thoughts on what it, what it means to you to be present? Like why, why do we want humans to be present? What's the, what's the whole point of drawing people to be here, right here, right now? Yeah. I think we're so used to always being ahead of ourselves, especially in America. We don't pause. We don't think through. We're always ahead of it. And when we're doing that, it is difficult for us to enjoy the moment, be it pleasure, be it pain. And I think we short circuit that experience and we just start to want to put it in different places, different pockets. Like I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. Well, yeah. when those build up and our pockets are full, then it's like, oh, what am I dealing with now? I've got a bunch of stuff I have to deal with. And then we think, oh, it's overwhelming. I, 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 I can't do this right now. I'll just keep packing it away. What, what I think meditation does, 
um, and breath work and being in the moment is it allows us to unpack that. For example, when I feel anxiety or stress, rather than say, oh, I'll deal with that later, I'll just literally take a deep breath in, just you know, through my nose and then breathe out in that very moment. So it's not a relay, like I'll do it tonight, I'll calm down, I will do it in that very moment. And I can't tell you how helpful that simple tool has been for me to regulate my own body and my own um, anxiety. Uh, you know, there's there's obviously deeper ways to do that. We we went to a um, a sound bath, you mm. know, where you're you're meditating, your breath work, and then they do this different sounds. Mm -hmm. But it's intentional. They wanted us to have an intentional goal going into it, and one of mine was to really try to understand and let go of my parents' perception of me. Both my parents have passed away, and so there's this lingering like. What do they really think of me? And it's been kind of heart heavy just to think, because I'll never really know. Mm. And during that breath work, I just had this overall calm feeling of like, it, it, yes, it matters, but it doesn't matter now. Mm. Like I can breathe that out and my worry is not useful. It's not productive. What I can take though, is that they love me. They did the best they could. And I am the person I am today because of them. So that was just a huge load off my shoulders, leaving that breathwork session with that intention. Yeah, a breath can do so much. Just this morning, I was in a hard conversation. And often when I feel the anxiety of conflict, I... Um, my brain races to try to figure out how to resolve the problem really fast. And like you say, like, I'll deal with this later, or let me just say something and let's move along. And I took, I just said, I just took a deep breath. And I said, let me respond to this person with my whole self. And when we take that breath and become present, the way that we respond to others is going to be so much more thoughtful uh, and considerate. Uh, and compassionate. And um, I can't say enough. I mean, I, I know that these practices have had a deep impact on you, but as I've sort of taken on kind of a secular Buddhism the last five or so years, it's impacted so much about how I show up in the world. And I still get, you know, sort of like struggle, struggling to be present. I get caught up in sort of the old way of doing things again, but the successes are so much more numerous than they used to be 10 years ago and even five years ago. Um, talking about meditation, talking about the effort to be present, um, what are some of the experiences that you've had with that, that have been beneficial to you? Like, um, what are some of the transformative experiences you've had with meditation or with the effort to be present that you can kind of note as having made a, a difference in your life? Mm -hmm. Uh, because we do it on a pretty regular basis, um, there's a lot of them. I think for me, what's beautiful is to, because I, I know that that's a way for me to call myself. Like we've got our singing bowls, which are beautiful bowls as you can, they have this great tune to them. And that just, that vibration really helps me to kind of get rid of the static of the moment and really sit in, what am I really needing clarity on? But I'll tell you, Bill, my favorite is to have someone new come into that space 
and watch their body and watch how they respond. Um, we, we had a family reunion and part of the reunion was at our home. Uh, it was a dinner and it was after the family had gone to the active, their active LDS, most all of them, they had gone to the temple for a baptisms or whatever, which is, which is beautiful. It's a spiritual thing. That's something that they value. And they came over and my sister-in-law said, Hey, would you mind taking my daughter to your room and just doing, helping her with a little breath work and meditation? Like I'd love that. Mm. Well, not only her, but eight other people came up to our room. And so we just turned some calm music on. I took the singing bowl. I just placed it in front of each person. You could just see their bodies just calming down. Mm -hmm. um, eyes closed. And so after it was finished, some of the kids were like, I don't want to leave this. I'm like, you can stay here as long as you want. And then later that night, we were out in the pool. And um, Jim's, one of his siblings was like, we got in the pool. And he goes, I need more of that. And he's highly active in the church. He's got leadership positions. I said, I would agree. <laughs> so here's, here's someone who is highly spiritual and religious where this experience really let him drop into his body. So I love sharing that with my clients mm -hmm. as well, when just even paying attention to them and asking a question and watching their body, if they're, you know, if they're leaning forward or kind of closing off mm -hmm. or, you know, that anxiousness and just to really say, I see you. And can we just take a breath together? We're going to breathe in and just hold it and then breathe out. And we can do the same with our kids and our family members. You know, if they're, if a kid is just off the edge and they're upset about something like, Hey, let's just, let's just take a break and take a deep breath and yeah. I'm calm and center. And we'll come back to this conversation. Yeah, sink back into your body a little bit and just realize, like, whatever I am, I'm. This is the moment. It's the only moment I've got is right here. Right. I always tell people the past is just memories, and the future never comes. All you have is right now. Yeah. And uh, you know, we have a we have a common friend, Jessica Fouts, who uh, I've been to her home, and she's done kind of a sound bath or kind of music therapy. Yeah. For for me and my wife, and we just sat there, and she would play different instruments, and one of them was the sound bowls, and that vibration, that tone that comes off of them, it really does. It just calls you to to be present, and uh, super helpful. Yeah. Um, and and I think the more tools, I mean, some people will go like I meditate, you know, and uh, some folks will get into drugs a little bit later, but some folks, certainly myself, use psychedelic mind altering conscious altering substances, and but there's so many ways in which to access what it is we're not accessing when we're busy about in this crazy chaotic world that you pointed out. And uh, I would just say, you know, what we're speaking to folks should feel encouragement to find at least one of these practices and probably, probably need three or four. Sometimes I'll be in my bed at night to go to sleep and I'll tell Alexa to play. Uh, she's probably going to talk here because she thinks I'm talking <laughs> to her. But uh, I'll tell her to play um, Native American flutes, and and she'll you know have that play. And that instrument's really special to me. And um, in certain instruments, call us to be really present. Mm -hmm. Certain instruments call us to go into the past, and some you know songs call us to go into the future. But some instruments really call us to be right here, right now. And, and I'd like to say cool. too, spaces. 
in our homes and places where we know we can go to that container and go close the door. I can be calm, turn some Mm. music on, maybe some really fun lights, just a dim or candles, a space that is kind of your sanctuary makes a big difference too. Yeah. You know, we both came from a tradition that said, you go to this location and sit in that room and this is your sacred space. And then you'd, you'd get there and it wasn't quite what you wanted it to be. And it felt like as soon as you got in there, yes, you can stay here as long as you want, but also like, don't stay here forever, move along. And as you were telling the story about your home and the music therapy for the folks that were in that room and the, and the one gentleman saying like, I want to stay here. I don't want to leave. Like you had created this really sacred space. And um, I think sacred spaces are so important. You know, we'll get it again. We'll get into psychedelics here in a little while, but yeah, but set and setting is such a big deal to a spiritual mindset. I want to, um, I want to talk for a moment about vulnerability as a, as a gay man, the moment you go, that's it. I'm, I am going to be me. I'm going to show up in this, this world where there's so much risk, so much risk of shame, right? There's so much risk of judgment of not belonging. There's so much risk of I'm, I want to be me, but maybe no one will let me, no one will make it safe for that. And again, we all go through some facet of that, but I think being uh, being gay is such a bigger expression of trying to show up and not knowing whether it's going to be okay or not. Mm-hmm. Um, talk for a moment about vulnerability and what you've learned about being vulnerable and anything else you have to say about the, as Brene Brown says, the power of vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, so spending a life of not being vulnerable, trying to be safe, gauging your your surroundings, scanning the room to make sure that, oof, is anybody here going to be, you know, toxic or abusive? So there's a container that we created that feels safe, this box that we can kind of climb into. And so when you finally get to that point, anybody, be it sexuality, be it out of the religion, be it whatever truth you have, we worry so much about what people are going to think about who we really are, who we've kind of shown what we want them to see or what, how we want to be perceived to then step into that. This is who I really am. And as I got closer to that, uh, I, I found that because my foundation, the foundation underneath me, because I was leaving religion, Mormon, Mormonism at the same time I was coming out my foundation was sand. I really didn't have a lot to stand on. And so when I would tell someone I would come out to them or a family member or whatever, it, it was like, I was really, um, I was tossed back and forth really easily. I think what took me to the place of having a stable, stable foundation was, you know, Jim and I got engaged and I was like, well, I I can only hide this so long. Like this is, (laughs) we're getting married. Yeah. It's, it's going to show up sooner or later. I got to face this, right? It's a thing, right? We're going yeah. to show up. And I remember creating a Facebook post, which I'm not going to say is everybody's place, but I felt like I needed to send a message to the people that, that know me that this is who I am and this is what's happening in my life. 
And I was so petrified to push that button. But as soon as I pushed that button, it was this, it was almost like the sand turned to concrete underneath my, underneath my fit. I was able to stand on it and go, I care about them, but I don't care enough for that to destroy who I feel like I am and who I am. That vulnerability was amazing. And from that point on, it just felt empowering. And so, you know, the, the wedding, you guys remember, um, it, beautiful, beautiful. And it was the right thing. And even kissing him in front of friends and family, the homophobia inside me was like, oh, what do they think? What are they feeling? And I thought, you can't worry about that anymore. You're in this moment of incredible love and commitment. And this is our special day that I, I just had to let it go. So I think anybody who is trying to face that vulnerable place, it does take courage to kind of climb out of that box and say, the box is there. If I need to climb back in it, I can. But do I really want to spend time in that box anymore? And it has changed the way we show up as a couple. Uh, we'll hold hands at grocery stores. In fact, I remember the couple of days after our wedding, I had a dentist appointment and you know, I had my insurance out and she said, whose insurance is this? I said, it's my husband's. And in that split second, I was able to communicate who I am without even thinking twice about it. So I think my advice for anybody is to really sit with, yes, you're going to have some fallout. You'll likely lose some relationships, but the, the relationships, the, the relationship you have with yourself and the people you love is more important. And you're also walking into a space where people are like, I see you and I really love you as a gay man. I want to be your friend. Mm -hmm. And those are the people you want to spend your life with instead of the people that are like, um, yeah, well, you can keep a distance, but we'll just be acquaintances. I don't have time for that. It's, it's such a strange thing when somebody, when you're, when a relationship with somebody disintegrates because you showed up as your true self, the thing that I, I kind of, and it hurts. There's no, you can't get around the hurt of it, but you sort of sense like they never really liked you for who you were anyway. Like again, back to the idea of you, they liked the idea of you. Yeah. They, they have a story in their head about what they needed you to be so that they would feel connection to you. And the moment you showed up in this world, not being that idea, but rather being yourself, that wasn't sufficient for them. They needed something else. And hence, whether it's a family or a friend, again, it hurts and we wish it wasn't so, but it also is sort of, sort of nice to know like, Oh, like they're not really interested in the person I am. And hence it's better if I spend my, my life energy elsewhere. Yeah, um, that was, um, I will say when we got engaged, I, we created a video to send to family just to let them know. We felt it was probably a little bit better to do that than just to text, you know, just to see our faces and our tone. And I was expressing my excitement and, you know, we we're so happy to have this happen to us. Send it to family and just said, hey, here's the wedding date. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you there. If for any reason this is hard for you, we would please ask that you don't attend. So we sent that out. I didn't hear anything back from family. Two days had gone by and I remember 
going to bed that night and literally feeling like I was melting into the mattress in almost a dying way. I wasn't, but the emotion had, I had put so much value on what my family thought of me that it was literally like, I, I, it was hard to breathe. And mm. finally Jim was like, babe, do you need to go to the hospital? I'm like, no, this is not a doctor thing. <laughs> this is my body saying you value so much their love and their support and it's not happening. And the next day I just had to realize like, I can love them for who they are and I can't put so much value on what they think I need to be or who I should be. I just need to let it go and move forward. So that's, there can be bumps in the road. There's no doubt about that, that that'll happen. But I think for people, my best advice is just keep, keep knowing that there's you more of you just as you take these steps down this path of, of discovering who you are. Yeah. Maybe, maybe speak for a minute. Um, you, you know, vulnerability, learning to be vulnerable. But by the way, one of the most attractive things about you is your vulnerability. I, I've always appreciated when I've, when I've been in uh, space with you, I've always felt, I felt, always felt good enough. I felt okay the way I was. And I've early on in my time, I can remember instances where I said something that was um, sort of that old version of me saying something unhealthy. And I remember a moment, I don't remember what it was, but I remember a moment where you, I, I knew you noticed that I had said something unhealthy. You, whatever it was, you communicated to me that I had uh, messed up. I don't like that language, but I had, I had messed up, but it, I didn't, it didn't come with shame or judgment. You made it safe to go like, oh, let's just learn from this. Like no big deal. Yeah. Um, you've always made it safe for me to be me. And it's one of the incredible gifts that you had that I've always, when I've been around you, just been uh, attracted to your humanity. You're you're an easy person to be around and be okay. Thank and you, um, yeah, you're very cool. welcome. And it, it's so risky inside my own head and body when I go to show up vulnerable to others. It is so risky to me, there's so much opportunity for someone to not be able to handle that or to hold it or to have judgment or shame for it. And so it's its own kind of journey to learn to do that. But there's also something else that happens when, when you step forward and you lean into being vulnerable, something happens with everyone else too. And I'm just, I'm curious I'm curious what your thoughts would be about what being vulnerable yourself does for other people who are also, whether we acknowledge it or not, every one of the other folks in that room are screaming to be them too. Any thoughts you have on what vulnerability does for a shared space of humans? Yeah. Yeah. I think as, as I mentioned that box of like safety, I got so tired of being in that, that i that vulnerability was kind of that next step of like, I don't have time to be in that little box. So yes, I found myself being more vulnerable in spaces and meeting people, but I've also learned that I'm paying more attention to the energetics of people. Like, are they a match? 
or are they a taker or are they a giver? And not that there's anything bad with those because we go through those in different periods of our lives, but I'm, I'm trying to gauge the energy of a person by, are we a match? And if so, I feel safe in expressing or talking about vulnerable things, especially if I can pick up on something in them and it's usually through the lack of eye contact or maybe their body or whatever it is, you can sense something like they have something inside them that is afraid to be seen. And I want them to know they're safe to, to be seen. Um, I don't want to push it to the point where they're, you know, not gonna, they're uncomfortable. Um, but I'll give opportunity to say, Hey, here, let, let me know, tell me about yourself. Um, you're safe. I see you. And I think that has taken some time to really fine tune because I'm kind of an empath and, and I used to get to the point where I would be vulnerable and I was overwhelmed by the vulnerability. Um, especially as I sit with clients and they'll just open up about a lot of vulnerable things and I'll try to take it on. And then I've, I've learned to not, I can still hold that space for that beautiful human, but I'm not going to have to like plug it into me. And I think it's the same with anybody. We can, if we're willing to go into a vulnerable conversation with someone and, and they, and we invite that in each other, it really is that expression of, Hey, this is what I've gone through. And I would love to hear your story. And I think that's where it often happens. People you know, they'll meet me or meet my husband and I, and hey, tell us your story. And that invitation says, gosh, I want to hear yours. And for me, I want to hear yours as well. It kind of breeds that openness with the people in the conversation. And I think too, you know, Bill, if, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's appropriate, like that experience, when you shared, you said, I want to get past my homophobia. And we'd gone out later that evening to, you know, um, uh, a place in Vegas and, uh, yeah. and there was a dance, there was a dance floor, right. And Jim and I are just out there dancing and I'm like, you know, Bill asked to be, get past homophobia. So I went up mm -hmm. and I said, Hey, do you want to dance? And you're like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Which again is perfect. Yeah. But I, I knew in that moment, like not ready and that's okay. And yet it, I wasn't offended. I wasn't hurt, but I think it's one thing to ask for something. It's another thing to experience something where it really kind of pushes us to go, Oh, here's an opportunity to really push into this and feel it and decide if it's something you want to you know, open up more about. Yeah. There, there are so many instances. So, Another thing the audience doesn't know, and I'm trying to figure out how I can best say, but um, there were other opportunities where you invited me to um, be in space with you in ways that weren't, you know, again, folks are just going to, you know, to, to hug you or to, uh, to be held by you for a moment. Um, I was determined as a human being, there are so many things about doing something that we think the rest of the world is going to attribute some sort of like meaning to, right? 
And we're so scared to put ourselves in a space where someone goes like, oh, you're not who you say you are. You're something different. And uh, when you asked me to dance in my head, I was, it wasn't just the dancing with a gay man. It's, it's, I don't like the way I dance. I don't, Mm. I kind of, whenever I dance with my wife, I sort of hide behind her and let her do the dancing because she's got all the rhythm and I'm sort of scared. I, I love dancing, but I'm sort of scared of dancing. I'm sort of scared of being seen dancing. And so in that experience, it's easy for someone watching to go, this is probably what's going on. And in reality, not to say that that's not part of it, because I really was struggling to overcome sort of my, my fear of being a straight man in a physical space with a gay man. But also a part of that was, I want to dance. There's nothing more I want to do in those situations than dance. And I'm afraid that someone's going to look at me and go, that guy's really a weird dancer. Like that, <laughs> That's so odd. But there were other spaces that weekend to be in your space and to enjoy human connection with you. And uh, that weekend was really s- transformative. I-, I felt like there was such growth in the goal that I wanted to be able to shed a significant degree of my homophobia. And I, everyone in that space, we had several friends. I think it was four couples, five couples on that weekend. And it was such a beautiful chance where everyone really got to be them. And no, and every, no one, I think, walked away with shame or judgment. Everyone just got to be themselves. And it was really magical. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think offhand where I want to go from here because there's several questions we could go to, but let me, one of the things about being vulnerable and being in a space where others then see you being vulnerable, hence they feel safe to be vulnerable. It sort of invites compassion, compassion in that um, I can sense in others how hard it is to be a human being. It's If I can swear for a moment, it's fucking difficult to be a human being. Um, I watch nature shows and the antelope gets chased down by the lion. Lion puts his teeth around the animal's neck and slowly extinguishes that animal's life. And that looks atrocious, but it's just the circle of life. It's just nature doing its thing. How much more complicated it is with us human beings who as shit is happening, trauma is being given, hard things are going on, And we have this consciousness that adds a story to it. And so not only did somebody bump into us and it hurts, but now we have a story about why they did what they did. And uh, we tell ourselves, man, if I could have just done that over, I could have avoided this. And if I would have done that, I could have, this would have happened. And we sort of can't ever get away from the moment. Um, Ducks, when they get upset by the behavior of another duck, they swim a few feet off and they shake their wings and then they return to the group and back to business as usual. And we get bumped into, and it is just days and weeks and months and years of, of stories hmm. that prevent us from sometimes ever recapturing the connection we wanted in the first place. And it really is about connection, right? Like we want to be okay in this chaotic world and we want to feel connected to, to others who we want to be accepted by and belong with. It, it causes compassion 
in that I notice how hard it is to be a human being. And, and so I will, um, I will sense how difficult it is for them to live their life. And all I want is to offer them the safety and security of going like, Hey, you're okay. Like I get it. You have these mechanisms, you have these attitudes, you have, um, you have this trauma you're carrying that all has to be so hard. And one of the ways we know that is because we know how hard it is to have all the shit we're carrying inside Hence, self-compassion, which sometimes I think is so much harder mm. than compassion is to, we can much more easily, I think when we're healthy and grounded, allow other people the space to be like, I, I can see why, uh, why your world looks like that and why you have difficulty with the things you do and why the things that happen to you hurt so much. And then we judge ourselves so hard. We don't, we don't really leave that same room for ourselves. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, um, on self-compassion and what self-compassion means to you. And maybe an example from your life where either you gave yourself that or you saw someone else giving it and maybe your thoughts there so that we can learn from that. Yeah, you're right. We, we are not as good to ourselves about self-compassion. And I think that's one thing that, you know, as a gay man, I was more concerned about everybody else because I could ignore me. And so I've had to really learn how to have self-compassion. Once I was okay with that and sitting in stillness myself, it was much easier to understand other people and what they're going through. So to, so I guess some, some thoughts about compassion. One question I love, and I, I don't typically start out with this when I meet someone for the first time, but someone you know and you sense it just to say, what's the hardest thing you're, you're dealing with right now? Um, I mean, you need to know them well enough that that's an okay question. Mm. Um, and, and oftentimes they will open up if there's the, the space and time to do it. But I've also wanted that same closeness to people, like even some family members that since I came out and left the church, we have a really strained relationship. And so the more I get to know myself and other people. It's like, Oh, I want that with my family so deeply. And I keep going back to that and want that closeness. And I come back with some pain. And so I'm, I'm learning that I can only go into those conversations with the same language that we both understand. Uh, it's not a language that I've developed outside of Mormonism and, and whatnot. I tried that but it was it wasn't always welcome and so realizing that our relationship may never be as deep as i'd like it to be but it is a relationship and it doesn't create more pain than it should and so uh, and, and i think sometimes too we we want validation right we want validation in the direction we're headed and there are certain people in our lives that we really want that pat on the back and it may never happen, but we tend to go back to that and like, Hey, are we better now? Are we better now? 
And it's almost like, oh, I know that Chihuahua bites me every time I get too close. Um, that's a cute puppy. But so I've learned, like, I can't get too close to that person because it it will hurt. And so just knowing that I can love them, I can respect their values, I can actually celebrate their values. If it's church, if it's family, um, so I think, I think for me, again, knowing that I'm okay, and, and that's the first step, and then being able to be open and vulnerable with other people and, and maybe pushing into that if it feels right. Yeah. It, yeah, you're, you're really good at the having compassion for others. You know, going back to the, the story about the inviting me to dance with you and me declining and, and on the front end of that experience, again, some degree of homophobia that kept me from enjoying a human connection with you in a really cool moment. And that was my loss. And then we, we fast forward to this moment where, um, you know, we, we embraced and had like a, uh, kind of a long embrace where I'm, I'm kind of sort of holding you and you're holding me. And in my head, I can sense the discomfort. This is uncomfortable, but I'm also going to sit with this. Like this isn't Miles fault. This isn't my fault. This is uh, Oprah Winfrey. And I think it's Bruce Perry, maybe, but write a book called what happened to you. Everything almost, almost like some of it is just, we are, we're just born into the world with some of our characteristics, but much of the way in which we handle conflict, handle differences, handle triggers because of what happened to us. There's the discomfort we have in being around somebody that's different. You know, we grow up in a, in a white city or a white neighborhood in a white school system. And suddenly we are in shared spaces with people of color. Whether it is the fact that there are so, when I'm a kid, there is essentially no such thing as being transgender. And there's no one in my vision that, uh, that is transgender. No one is in my um, social circle anywhere. And not only that, but my grandfather and my father, uh, my aunts and my uncles are making comments that are making it very clear to me that that is something bad and uh, sinful is the language my religion gave me. And, and so we come to any moment where we meet the person or the thing or the experience that we have been just trained to diminish. And that discomfort we have is it's natural. We, there's nothing we could really do about it in that moment, but we can do things in that moment that allow us to show up more whole in the next moment. And so in that discomfort, we had this really cool experience. But if you remember the last time we hung out, I asked you if I could hold you for a moment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember as that was happening inside my head, recognizing the significant difference that my discomfort was almost, I'm not going to say entirely, but almost entirely gone. Mm. And and so I'm, I'm a well aware that we, we can't really do much about what our body is 
giving us in this moment, what our thoughts are giving us in this moment, but we can um, joyfully wrap our hands around, arms around growth, and uh, we can joyfully wrap our arms around progress and learning and the desire to be different in the next moment. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts that we can absolutely do that if if we embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, can I say one thing about please, that? Please, please, please. Per- perfect. Um, <clears throat> so I had an experience with a straight friend where he's like, okay, you're a gay guy and I want to like, what do you need from me? And I said, I would love to do an experience with you where if you were to like embrace me, I want to pay close attention to my body, just my heart rate, my gut. And so he would do it. He he just kind of put his arm around me. We were cuddled up. His wife and several friends were there just kind of cuddled up. And I just checked my heart rate and it was going up because, you know, again, a lifetime of like, uh, what are people thinking? What am I thinking? And it was a really intentional experience because every five or 10 minutes, I would say, I'm going to do a check-in right now. And it was coming from me. I'm not necessarily him. He's a really lovely, boisterous kind of just playful guy, but it's retraining my body. Um, and like you expressed, you know, we get, we can retrain our body responses to go, Hey, this is safe. Actually, this is healing. You know, our experiences together, there was healing elements to that for me too. Mm-hmm. At any time I can be accepted by, especially straight men, where those were the people in society that I just was afraid of. And I don't mean afraid of and like running away from, but just you had to be around them because it's society. But now I've been able to have so many wonderful experiences of true connection and being able to say something, you know, to them like, gosh, this feels good. Or, you know, I hope you're okay. Or I'm okay. Um, Some that I would be able to express, gosh, I'm attracted to you, but it's more in a soulful way. I'm feeling this like a heart resonance with you because when you're growing up and you're not close to men, it can be objectified pretty easily. Um, And I don't know how that is in the straight world, but, so all of a sudden it becomes a sexual tone instead of just a heartful tone. Not to say that I'm not attracted to some men. It's just, it's become a much healthier bandwidth in my body to go, ah, that's why I'm drawn to you because you have great heart, great energy. Um, there's a safety to you. Yeah. And you're one of those. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Let's talk for a moment about sex. It's a fun topic. Absolutely. When, when I deconstructed religion and religion, my religion gave me so many unhealthy attitudes towards sex. We, we tell everyone that masturbation's wrong. So this perfectly normal thing that human beings and almost all of them certainly men, but almost all of them, even when we include women, are experiencing, and it's a normal part of, of, of being a human being. And we, we apply all these negative stories to it and connections to other things. Um, 
it, it just ends up being so harmful. And then there's so much, uh, you know, whether it be, and again, we could debate the ills of pornography, but the idea of like, you're, you're an addict because you mm. spent 10 minutes looking at, you know, pornography. There's so many things that religion goes, no, no, no. We've talked to God. We know exactly how this is, what this is. We know exactly how God feels about these things. And this is what God feels about these things. And then, and then when you realize that your religion was hiding so much of its problematic history, and then you start to sense the diversity of other human beings. And so you, you begin to kind of go like, Oh, like, like this miles guy, he's gay, but he's, really cool and nice and he's a kind of seems to be a better human than I am. I, I think maybe this gay thing is just not a thing, you know? And, uh, and so the moment you discard your religion and realize that it was wrong in the rules that it gave you, that it's self-selected rules that don't work. It, it hid from you where contradictions could have been discovered earlier that it was bullshitting you. You just, now realize it's not a trusted voice for actually giving you truth. Mm-hmm. And, and that deconstruction now opens up this giant gateway to like, now everything's in question. And one of the big things that for me that was in question was the rules I had formed around sexuality and relationships. And it was really scary to step into a space where I kind of opened up and said, Hey, Hey babe, talking to my wife. Hey babe. Um, I'm not really built the way I've been portraying to you or the rest of this world. I've been sort of wearing a mask. Here is what my sexuality really looks like. And the fear of whether that will be, um, tolerated which i hate it's a it's it's a word that says you're still bad i just am gonna put up with it right negative but it's there (laughs) yeah so whether i'll be tolerated or whether i will be accepted for who i am and tolerated is better than not tolerated but accepted is exponentially um what's the framing uh maybe it's brene brown but there's like uh there's like opposites and then there's like these really brutal opposites so uh, one of the, the opposite of, uh, empathy. No, it's, it's close. It's, it's close like cousin, but the opposite of empathy is like disregard, but the close cousin of empathy is sympathy. And it's sympathy. Once you've had empathy, sympathy is like, mm, yeah. you dropped me off a casserole, but you didn't really want to know what was wrong in my world. Right. right. And so this idea that tolerance is like the close cousin of acceptance and often tolerance is used as a way to go like, I'm still going to think you're wrong, but I'm just not going to be an asshole about it. Um, but sort of, it's still passive aggressive and sort of an asshole. Um, maybe speak for a moment of having been a gay man who tried to do the religious thing. You married a woman that on, on that level, it exploded because it was never really able to, it never had any ability to work in the first place. Maybe talk for a moment about as you kind of deal with that and come out of religion, 
what do you what do you do with trying to figure out your sexuality and now that you know that religions rules morals ethics guidelines principles constructs are all bullshit what do you do to now figure out like what is a healthy way of navigating my sexuality and how do i now make new decisions without knowing how exactly to do that or what is right or wrong. And I don't like that language either. Um, your thoughts, I guess, on that big, messy, complex question. Uh, that's a really important question um, because I used to veer from the sexual conversation, right? It just was, yeah. but I will say in something very sacred to me that really shifted the way I think is, you know, the first time I ever had sex with my husband, which was the first time I'd ever had gay sex. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. I remember being overwhelmed by this incredible feeling of like, this is who I am. This is how I was made. This is how I can feel. I actually got emotional. I started crying because it was like, it just felt so true to who I was created to be. Mm. I, I never had that with my wife, nothing against her at all. It's just the, it's just not fully there. And so that helped me to start to rewrite the idea of sexuality and stripping away the nonsense and the demonizing uh, thoughts from, from religion. Because, you know, when we're raised in a religion, we're told the can'ts and you shouldn't and you uh, you know, even masturbation, it was just, it was horrifying to think that, oh my gosh, I, I did that. But, and so you're taught not only to feel bad about it, but then you're also taught your body is part of that feeling bad. And so pleasure, you know, be it porn, be it whatever is this, it's always overshadowed by this shame right behind you. Like, hey, this might feel good for a second, but wow, the fallout is horrible. Well, the fallout's horrible because we were told it's going to be. Um, one thing that I learned, and I actually pass that on to my clients, is a pleasure practice where it's just them and their body to take time and like maybe light candles. And, and this is for men. This is not typically what men do is light candles and have time for themselves. But what it allows them and what it allowed me to do on my own is to just be okay with sensation in my body and pleasure in my body. And anytime some little voice from some church leader or whatever came in, I'm like, I see you and you're not welcome. This is my space and this is my body and I'm going to enjoy my time right now. And I think that has helped rewrite a lot of things. The, once you can get past that too, then the idea of pleasure becomes so different for individuals and couples. Um, you know, one thing that my husband and I, we were so good at giving like, oh, I want to pleasure you. We're not good at receiving. And so practices of even mm -hmm. saying, I have to lay here and not touch back. And just allow that instead of being a pleaser and <laughs> touching mm -hmm. back. And it was a little bit hard in the beginning to just, just receive and surrender to breathing and allowing and not trying to think of like, well, I need to rub his arm or I need to kiss him. And so those have kind of really helped dismantle 
the the ideas that this is bad or wrong and it's just more of who we are and we are like you said bill we're all very different in in our sexual ways um and i think having those conversations as a couple is so vital because if a person is living with any kind of shame in that it can flare up pretty easily and so just to be able to know that hey we're two different people we've chosen to be together here are some things that I'm interested in, or these are things that you're interested in. And if something is said to us to maybe we're like, Oh, okay. But just realize, thank you for trusting me to tell me that. And I want to talk more about that, you know, share what you're thinking and I'll share what I'm thinking. Um, and it could be a conversation. It could also be moving into a certain space that you learn what that's like. Um, we don't really know sometimes until we're, we have experiences to go, Oh, that's what that means, or that's how I respond to it. But I think just remembering that shame has been such a part of the sexual story for anybody, especially out of religion, that it's not welcome in the bedroom. Mm. I want to ask another facet of this because it, it's not just sexuality, but it's so many parts of us as we, and, and the thing I want to ask is about negotiating. So mm -hmm. we're in a relationship excuse me, we're in a relationship with another human being, uh, our, our primary partner, you know, in our world, our spouse, your, your husband, your wife, um, in uh, our primary relationship and with friends and things too, like all the relationships in our world, we're having to negotiate. But I think it's so much more tangible when we share a living space with somebody, when we, when we're both kind of counting on each other to help carry the burden of, of life together. Uh, negotiating is such a difficult thing in that you are you and you want to show up in the world in this, in this way that, that if you were allowed to do all of these things, you'd be uh, at least to some degree content and healthy, have well-being. And then there's this other human being that you're sharing a life with and they have their expectation of what they would like their life to look like and the things that bring them happiness and Often we align ourselves with uh, people who have a lot of overlap there, certainly, but not perfect. Mm -hmm. And in those differences where there's sort of a, an abrasion or there's a clashing, there in those in those moments, a relationship requires healthy negotiation. It requires standing up for what you need, respecting what the other person's needs are, setting boundaries, setting expectations, and trying to get what you need, accommodate their needs, and have as little suffering or harm as possible. And that's not exactly avoidable. Your thoughts on how to navigate a relationship so that both people get as much of the world as they can that they need and want while trying to do as little harm in the wake of that as possible? Mm. That's a million dollar question. It uh, is, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I can stay in the sexual realm if we want, or just looking at it globally in a relationship. Um, Up to you. Okay. I think so from a sexual standpoint, we have, we have different levels of need and desire and compatibility and all those things. And 
I think starting off with those conversations to say, okay, what, what do you think that would do for you? And uh, one example that I'll share is as we've talked, my husband and I talked about a certain scenario. It's like, well, what if we were to watch that? And I hate to use the word porn because it's just got such a, but you know, something really beautiful and to watch that together to then talk about what exactly in that experience mm. really turns you on. Mm. Can we replicate that in our relationship? Is it the holding? Is it the kissing? Is it the, what exactly is it that we can kind of dissect out of that to plug into what we have? And <clears throat> we try that. And it's like, oh, okay, thank you for explaining to me that this is a turn on for you. Um, because oftentimes we come from a place of, well, that turns me on. It must turn you on, right? Um, and of course, you know, here we're talking about two men, which we we know how we respond for the most part. Yeah. But the to know that that vulnerable thing to say, yeah, this is what I like. I mean, I remember the first time we watched porn together, we were both like, yeah, this is what I like, and this is what I like. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, well, well, can, I, so, can I tell you that? Yeah, right. I'm like, this is is this ugly? Is this? And we're like, why do we create? Why have we come into this yeah. thinking that? But it. I think that's a healthy thing for any relationship to just say, mm. yeah, this is a part of me. And it actually opens up a door of like, wow, you were vulnerable with me. And I love that. And how do we work together on that? So I think mm. I don't even want to say compromise, but just understanding and seeing that person either nervous, like, yeah, that's what I like or excited. Like, yeah, that's really what I like. Cause those are both kind of the same feeling of, if they're nervous, that means there's something to that. Um, but then just to have a conversation and and then to practice that and see that person, your partner come alive. That I think for me, Bill, is when you have, there's a compromise, there's a conversation, be it, you know, if it's household stuff, kitchen, whatever it is, if a person can express themselves and then you support that, there's an aliveness to that support. Mm where I think it starts to take down the, the, Hey, we're keeping score here. Like I gave you this and you can give me this. It's almost like, I love seeing you light up. And how do you feel right now? And this is how I feel like I can light up. Mm. Yeah. You really take, you really take joy in the other person's joy. There's a, there's a word compersion that um, I, I hear at times, which is this idea that you take, happiness in another person's happiness you take pleasure in another person's pleasure yeah. um and and that really is sort of a, a really you really have to get to a really grounded healthy place where someone living their life differently than you would like your life or others lives to be lived to still find joy in them being able to achieve a full expression of themselves um i want to i want to ask one more question and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here. I want to give you a minute to talk about uh, your life coaching and, and anybody, I don't know if you do any of these kinds of uh, sessions like via zoom or if you're willing to do sort of yeah, absolutely uh, yeah, online. Absolutely. So I'd, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of share how people can find you, but thank you. Let's talk for a moment about death. Mm. Um, dying scares the hell out of me. The last three minutes of my life, I know all the ways in which most people die. 
some of it seems like it's going to hurt. Some of it seems like it's going to be full of fear and trepidation as it's happening. Some of it I'm told is peaceful. I don't know if I believe those people. Oh, they, they had a, they, you know, they just had such a peaceful expression on their face. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm scared. So dying, the act of dying frightens the hell out of me. Death. I don't, know that I care much other than I'm worried about the people left behind and their ability to um, tie up all the loose ends of my life, right? Like business and um, uh, I guess that's really probably the main one is that, you know, how can to make sure that my wife, for instance, is okay after I'm gone, how do I make it, feasible for her to take all these things that she doesn't even know how these things work and to be able to help the company reconcile all of that to be able to move on. Okay. And for her to be okay. Right. I'm worried about my children, not knowing how much I love them and I try to share with them, but I, I also, I also have flaws to me that keeps them from seeing what's really going on inside about how I feel for them. So Death doesn't scare me, but what death means for everyone left behind has me really worried. What are your thoughts on death and dying? And um, it's one of these topics that we all sort of are going to have this moment where either it's we're going to enter this. We don't remember before we were born. I mean, as much as our religion said we existed in some pre-earth life, we sort of like don't have any clue of that. And I, I think maybe death is the same way that we exist in the exact same way that we existed before we were born, which is, it's just nothing. So there's no reason to fear nothing because it's nothing, but also like maybe it's something and, and we all get to find that out. And um, your thoughts on death. Yeah, this is, I appreciate this question because, um, you know, both of our moms passed away about the same time. Mm -hmm. and we were able to have a great conversation about that. So backing up, my father died when I was active in the church. And I say that because there's definitely that thinking of like, hey, it's going to be fine. Everything's fine. It's all planned out. We'll see him again. And so it really didn't force me to really sit with grieving loss mm. and the questions um, and then when my mom passed away, I was no longer in the church and I was out and married to my husband. And I remember the gratitude I had for not knowing because what it did is, and still to this day, it keeps pushing me to like, Hey, maybe you want to learn more about this. Maybe, maybe this is an important topic for you to consider this and consider that. And I did, I, I did go through a lot of learning uh, curves with her death. Um, and so part of that is just having conversations like this. Um, we have a group of friends that we've had a couple of dinners. It's called, well, we're renaming it. It's called uh, dinner to die for. And mm. we get together in a group and the conversation is about what do we fear about dying? Um, what do we want done with our body? What ideas do we have as far as like the mourning process or, you know, what happens to, uh, are we cremated? Are we buried? Are we 
what it's it's a collaborative conversation around a dinner table that we normally would never have. Mm. You think about how many people want to get together and talk about death, but I will tell you, it is one of the most rewarding experiences to sit there with people that you love and to talk about something hard to talk about, but it's like, mm. oh, I'm not alone. I don't feel weird. I don't, this isn't a strange thing. And it allows us to bring that from the back of the shelf to the front of the shelf and say, it's all right. Like it's going to happen, but I don't need to ignore that. And Bill, I think what it does too is because our partners are typically part of that. They're in that conversation as well. And then we get to go home and talk to our kids and say, Hey kids, we had this conversation about death. I would love to have a family dinner or a whatever walk in the park or whatever to talk about that because you and I, have experienced that loss and it is, I don't know what it's like to to die, obviously, but it is hardest for the people who are left behind. And I think the more we can prepare our loved ones and friends for being able to let us go, that I think is one of the most valuable things we can gift our family members and friends to say, hey, I love you. And whatever love looks like, if there's even if I'm an energy after this life, I have no idea, but I'll carry that with me. But please know that it's OK to let me go. Um, mm. and let's make the best of what we have now. And when we're together, let's let's make it quality. You know, we don't have to talk around about the small talk about, you know, work. And I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but it just it can be those initial conversations that we think are safe and uh, there's more to it. So maybe even saying, Hey friends, let's, let's talk about dying. Here's a podcast. Here's a, here's, here's a thought about um, dying. In fact, we watched a show last night in a part of it. The, the mother of this young man, she had uh, cancer and she was dying and they had a live memorial So they invited all their friends. She was still capable of talking. And she said, the more I was putting this together for after I die, the more I realized I want to see this before I die. Mm. And I thought, yeah, why do we do these celebrations when that person's not even there physically? Um, Why don't we do those and just celebrate life and love and, and what we, how we love our friends and family members. Yeah. I'm the one thing I, you know, again, death doesn't necessarily bother me, but there is an aspect of it, which is I I kind of like me. I kind of like my personality. I kind of like the things I've spent time trying to learn and and to grow from. And, and there isn't, you can't really download it. You can't like, Hey, here's, here's everything that makes up me. And now you can go take it and know all of that. And there's sort of a sadness that, none of it really does mean anything like it is the meaning we give it. Right. And um, Buddhism sort of teaches us to just become accepting of that, that nothing really does matter. And we should do everything in this moment to reduce suffering and to let, to allow people to have the best human experience possible. Um, Treat animal life with a sacredness, treat the planet with a sacredness, but the idea of just dying and then every all the, all the information, all of the 
processes you've I've learned about how how to human it, it it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's sort of sort of sad. Does even as you've confronted death again, we've we've lost family. Even as you contemplate your own, sort of a sadness there. Um, any thoughts from you on what you do with that? Yeah, I, I think first I would want to ask myself the question, what would I want, say, my kids or my spouse to remember about me? And and I want to remove ego from that. Ego can be yeah. <laughs> like yeah. all the things, you know, yeah. um, remove ego from that. And then I think what lesson have I learned in life that would be most beneficial for them to thrive as a human? And one of the things recently, it's like, maybe I create a series of breathwork meditations that I'm recording with some music in the background. That to me, because breathwork and meditation have become such a spiritual practice for me that I would want to um, embody that for them and share that with them to say, of all the things I've learned in my life, this is the thing that has brought me to myself. And I want you to have the same. Mm. Um, Maybe it's that fishing for some people, like, you know, whatever it is, maybe they get their kids a fishing pole. I, I, again, something that engages them, but doesn't, it's not a forceful, like, well, this is what I want you to know. And maybe for you, Bill, like you're a podcaster. What if you were to do a podcast for each of your kids? Just, just mm. for them yeah. to say, you know, this is me and this is what I want you to know about me. And those are shared after they die. And mm. so I think whatever we're good at to just strip away again, all the ego and like leave the nuggets of life, those precious diamonds in the middle of that. And what do we want to pass on to our loved ones and friends? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm noticing now that I'd never asked the question on psychedelics. If you've got a second, what, what are your thoughts on drugs, conscious altering tools, psychedelic, like drugs is the bad word we, that, the world right. applied to it. And the government, folks, the government just lied to us. It it was so scared of what thinking, what thought changes would happen that the system would be threatened by, that we were told stories that if I used LSD, like my, my sperm would be messed up, or if I used cannabis, this would happen. If I and again, there certainly are addictions and there certainly are uh, negative outcomes with drugs. Uh, but drugs is such a bad word to use. So if we say psychedelics or conscious altering tools, uh, if we plant medicines, mm-hmm. if we talk about the uses, the positive uses these things have, what are your thoughts on these these substances as tools to help us figure out how to human better? Yeah, I'm, I'll refer to them as medicine. Yeah. Because... Yes, you know, you know, we you were raised, we were raised in an era of like this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and so yeah. it was just this really demonized uh, scenario. What I've learned though is that I have have had so many spiritual enlightening moments with medicine that have kind of it's almost like I want to walk forward, but there's these rubber bands of society and culture and my religion that have like it's like too many that I can't break 
break that. But then these medicines have allowed to kind of just snap those or cut those and go, oh, I, I am able to really feel the divine in me. Mm. I'm able to feel so much more that I'm that I am capable of feeling once I can kind of let that other stuff go. Um, even even THC, we have found that we're intentional about it and we'll take it before say we have to have a, a tricky conversation with one of our kids, a mm. very low dose. Mm -hmm. Or when we as a couple are needing to kind of let's talk through some things. Um, we'll have some, it, it just, we know it well enough to know what it does for us. Now, if I were to back up to, if I was 18 years old and I was trying this stuff, I wouldn't have had the perspective to know I, I may have gotten addicted to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think now as being older, I can see the value in there's a time and a place for this, these medicines and it should be ceremonial. And I don't mean it has to be serious every time. Ceremony can also be joyful. It can be pleasure. Mm -hmm. It can be any of those things. And I, you know, my, my first experience was with ayahuasca and <clears throat> my whole intention was to go into that. I was trying to decide if I should move from Utah to be with Jim. Um, if what our lives would look like together, you know, being away from my kids, even though they were adults. And I went into that with those intentions. And I remember leaving that experience, just realizing, I don't think I could have done this on my own. I mean, that experience alone just helped me really figure out what I was truly feeling, um, that I was safe to make these decisions. So I've seen it work in so many beautiful ways. In fact, we just had a, a friend over the weekend. He just said, that was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had in my life. Mm. So I think if people are looking for spiritual tools, those can be used. And like you said, just to be careful not to overdo it because if that's the only way we can feel vulnerable or the only way we can feel like we can have those conversations, maybe back it up a little bit and realize, all right, I still need to, to kind of live in the present and have those conversations. Um, but maybe breath work is a good in between, maybe just stillness to kind of sit in my own body. Mm. And then those deeper experiences with medicine do those and uh, get clarity. Yeah. Tell us about your, your life coaching. Tell us about what it, you know, what, what is, who are the, who are the general in general, who are the clientele um, and who like what, um, what areas of people's lives are you really focusing in on? What, what are people coming to see you about and, and then also share with people how they could find you if they were interested, if, if they were drawn to you in this conversation and said, man, this, I would love to get some advice and some, some help. And this is such a great personality. I think I'd mesh really well with, with miles is tell us about the life coaching and how people can find you. Yeah. Thank you. So this kind of started years ago when, <clears throat> when I came out, Jim and I were in a, a Facebook group of gay uh, men who were Mormon or former Mormon. And it was a private, private group that people would come in with these stories of like, this is what's happening right now. Or my kids have been taken from me, blah, blah, whatever 
whatever things have happened, be it from the church. Mm. And it was this kind of triage, if you will, of, of a place for people just to come in and they're on fire. And mm. so Jim and I were able to really help a lot of men and they would oftentimes reach out separately. And we were, our, our goal was to just kind of get them all back on their feet and help them find some stability. And so having done that for years, um, I started doing that as coaching because my, my target audience is um, men, be it gay, bisexual, or straight men who have left the church or considering leaving or don't really believe it, but they've lost community. They don't know their own authority. You know, as we know in the church, you're kind of given this pretend authority that you're something important. And when you leave that, all of a sudden, those things are not there and you got to figure out who you are. And so my main, I would say my main goal, Bill, with this is to help people, men, to find their own voice, their own intuition, to trust that, to um, allow that to be part of their growth, um, to have a safe space for them to share the things that they're going through, uh, be it coming out or just sitting with differences in their marriage. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people who leave religion. It's it's a store of all kinds of possibilities and then learning those things and, and the two you know partners may not be on the same page, but being able to have a pocket uh, of safety for them to share what's going on. Another interesting group that I mentioned is the bisexual man. I, I don't think there's enough support out there for bisexual men because it's if they say, well, I'm bi, people almost, they want to just shove them right in the gay box. Like, well, if you like that, then you, you, you're really gay. No, it's a reality. There's a mutual attraction to both men and women. And so validating, like you are fine the way you are. Let's talk through what that is and what that attraction is, um, what you're looking for. Um, how do you manage that? But a lot of that is just letting them be okay with just that feeling and breathing into it and just going, I'm okay being me. And yes, they might get judgment um, or they might be curious and they're not. Uh, <laughs> I've had some friends who are like, I think I might be bi. I'm like, well, let's talk about that. And the more we've talked through that, they realize, no, I, 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 I can love men, but I'm not necessarily drawn to men. So just having a really safe place to, to communicate about things like that and um, help them set goals. Cause in coaching, it's really about where are you at now and where do you want to go in the future? Where therapy is more like, where have you been? What's happened to you and where are you at and how can we help you? So just helping men really find their voice and community. I'll run some men's group where the men will come in either uh, virtually or in a uh, physical space that we do breath work together. We have conversations together. We share, um, things that are maybe scary to talk about outside of that pocket. Um, but we're not talking about cars. We're not talking about sports. It is the, we're here to be really open with each other. And it pushes some men a little bit, but they leave going, oh, wow, I needed to be pushed. So it, it's a it's a wonderful thing for me to see men feel more confident in whoever they are. How can people find you? If, if somebody goes like, man, I'd like to, I'd like to get some life coaching. Yeah. My website is mileshunsaker.coach. I'm also on Instagram at mileshunsaker.coach and then Facebook. 
So uh, I just, in fact, I just got those up two weeks ago. So it's, it's up and running and before it was just word of mouth, but yeah, please reach out. I can do a, um, a free discovery call, 45 minute call just to get to know the person. And it is kind of like a first date. You know, if we have really great energy together and we feel like it's a safe place to have a conversation, then that's great. We'll move forward from there. Awesome. I will put a link in the show notes, folks, so you can check that out if you're interested. Um, I just want to express deep gratitude for your time. I want to express deep gratitude for uh, you living out your humanity the way you do. You've been such an example to me for years. And I appreciate, again, how safe you make it for other humans, myself included, to be in your space and to be just okay the way we are. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think folks are going to really get a lot out of the conversation that we had today. And I'm really grateful that uh, you spent this time kind of helping this audience navigate through things that I think all humans deconstructing religion and trying to create kind of a healthy second half of life uh, are, are thinking about and wrestling with. And I, I think some of the, the thoughts that you shared today are going to be deeply helpful to folks. And so I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Um, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. And I know as men, that's one of the hard things for us to say, but it just, it comes from the heart. So thank yeah. you for this opportunity. Awesome. Have a great day, my friend. And uh, folks, leave your comments, subscribe, like. You can check out the podcast at almostawaken.org. Uh, Miles, have a beautiful day. And uh, I hope I hope only good things happen to you. You too. Thank you. Okay, take it easy. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. 